Welcome to Time to Market, a brand new podcast by NSK Murphy and Lean B2B. In this very first episode, we're going to be discussing how Sean and I got into B2B, why we stayed in B2B, why the idea that organizations are always rational is not always a reality, how low you need to sell within organizations, and what is what has been changing in B2B and what will be changing in B2B moving forward. Enjoy this first episode. We're going to talk about B2B businesses and startups that sell to businesses. Our goal is to offer actionable insight, principles of application, and rules of thumb for entrepreneurs who want to develop and launch B2B products and B2B startups. Etienne? Yeah. So we're going to be focusing on short, actionable content. We're going to be looking past uh, the history of entrepreneurship. We're going to be looking at its evolution and to try to understand and make sense of what it is to be an entrepreneur today. Etienne and I have both started a couple of businesses. Yes. And, and we're, I, I would characterize both of us as, in all humility, as thoughtful practitioners. As students. Students. Yeah. I think that's probably a good way to put it. So Etienne, I'll let, I'll let you go. So. The, the name of your firm is Lean B2B, is that yes, right? Yes. So you've kind of you've kind of baked in your commitment to B2B from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, well, you got to commit, right? Oh, absolutely. No, and I, 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 my choice was unconscious. We just never did. We never did consumer. So I'll, I'll explain how we started, and then I'll, 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 I'll ask you to maybe explain why you picked what you did. Yeah. I, I think we kind of, for whatever reason, we started working with bootstrappers back in 2003. It was, it was nuclear winter in Silicon Valley. The dot-com crash left the ground covered with snow. And it turned out that in selling to business, the, the deals, things have changed a lot since then, but, but the consumer markets, the software consumer markets were less well understood, I think. And we just did B2B because that's what the people that, we knew that we were helping wanted to do. I think that, that for bootstrappers, there is an advantage that the deal size is typically 10 to 100x the average consumer transaction. And you're more likely, if you can align with the needs of the business, to have a recurring revenue or subscription relationship that has got a longer lifetime. So I'll so start over you. How did yeah, you so, pick B2B? Well, so was it the conscious decision then or it just kind of happened to some extent it was all i knew it was all i okay. knew i had never i had never sold consumer products yeah i didn't understand the physics of those markets the closest back i mean so we had i mean fr freemium models and a lot of the stuff there'd been shareware since the 1980s right i mean so so it wasn't like the it wasn't like the models were known and and you know open sources around so the the, the business models were all there it's just I had I'd worked inside of large firms on the buy side, and on the on on the marketing side on the sell side. So it was what I knew. Yeah. So I, I guess it's to some extent it's kind of, it's similar in some ways, but it's basically all my jobs that I've ever had were all B two C. So I worked in fashion, I worked in mobile marketing, I worked for loyalty programs with consumers, but somehow when I started thinking about the first time really thinking about starting a business, it was kind of based on the things that I knew, the things that I had seen in, in a company, because that's kind of where the opportunity came from. So my first startup, when I was working on a thing called Flatback, I kind of just came out of the work that I was doing. So I 
didn't really see it necessarily as a split between B2C, B2B. It just kind of was the thing that I was looking at and thinking about and on the daily, because that was my, the problem that I had. So there was no consideration of what you mentioned, like the, the deal size or the way companies think or all these things. It's just things that kind of I discovered afterwards once I started digging into the, the B2B box to some extent. So, so in a way you kind of, you kind of were in this and I kind of stumbled in this. So it's a little bit of maybe a representation of how, how entrepreneurs kind of get into B2B to some extent. So I started a photography business in high school because I had an interest in photography and I would do, we would take portraits and we did, we would do shoot couples at proms and all that, whatever you do when you're you know, 16, <laughs> 17, 18. But that was, I think that was my last consumer business in college. I worked with a guy, we had Woodruff and Murphy Decision Systems Associates, and that okay. was selling to business. And we just, I just, that was where I went, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I, I did start the hockey league as, as Canadians would do. And then that was, that was consumer, but that was never really perceived as entrepreneurship. I think that's all other discussion, like the whole topic of how people get into entrepreneurship specifically. But this is the story of how I got into B2B and how you got into B2B. What do you, what do you think are the core things that make B2B attractive? Like you, you did, you mentioned this, like we're talking about 20 years ago. Like, why are you still in B2B? Like you, you would have had a lot of chances to start your own photo app or start working on viral games that do X and Y. Why, why not change? Well, there's a couple of questions in there. I think, I think that. We have periodically, so the user interfaces that enterprise software has compared to what's available in games, it's not any, there's no comparison. I mean, the information density and the cleverness in the user interfaces for games, if you look at, uh, you know, pick your favorite SimCity, Civilization, things like that, the amount of information that's presented on the screen for immediate action for decision-making I just haven't seen that in enterprise apps. And periodically we've approached folks that do various kind of flash games and other games, and they, they, and they just want to do games. So we can't lure them into the enterprise market. I do think there's, there's two, there's kind of maybe three levels of B2B or three scopes or scales. I think at the very bottom end you've got, or the smallest, you've got selling to freelancers where you've got a you know, single single person or maybe a two or three person team, but they're evaluating the purchase in the context of their business. And I find that decision making process, just for me, a lot easier to understand and to frame is typically saving costs, saving time, yeah. something like that, generating more revenue. I, I find that easier to understand and work with than some consumer preferences where there's other factors that that come into play and then the 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 next step up might be a small business where they've got less than 25 people they has, they're still buying for the business but there's some structure to it and then you've got the enterprise level where you've got a lot of fingerprints on the gun and you're you're looking at a committee decision almost always but i find it easier to navigate that for because I was on the inside because I, I was on the other yeah. side I was on the buy side for 20 years right yeah so would you kind of say in that case that that BTB or enterprise kind of became your 
a key part of your domain knowledge to some extent. Like you have beyond the specifics of you were working at Cisco, like did the actual business that they do, like you're, you're also more or less learn about business itself, like the business of business to some extent, or bu the business of enterprise to some extent. So in 2003, I had already been working for 20 years. So I had brought, I, I was bringing a lot of work experience, both on the, uh, as a buyer, as, an, as someone who had been buying software for primarily engineering applications. And then I would move across the table and, and also work as a vendor, as an application engineer, as a marketing guy. So it was what, it was what was in my kind of bag of Legos. It was, it was the experience that I'd already accumulated. So it was natural just to, to continue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I'm, I don't know if I'm answering your question or. I think it's a good leveling off point. So to some extent, would you say that the fact that if there's a need or there's a problem in B2B, like part of the positive side is that there is a greater likelihood that a need leads to a purchase that a need lead to a business approach that can be, can be, can be built upon. Like, as opposed to in B2C, you might be coming up with something that people like, but the monetization aspect of it may be much more challenging or, or there, there may be much more risk in the, the likelihood of being able to monetize the innovation RAS in B2B. If there is a need or if there's a market or there's an opportunity that you identify, most times, if there's demand, there's, there will be revenue associated. Is that a little bit what you mean by it being more, maybe more predictable to some extent? Well, I guess I'm saying for me personally, I find it more predictable. I think there are probably people that are more skilled at consumer than I am that the reverse is true, right? And so I would just say for me personally, it's easier to decode the business decisions than it is to decode the consumer decisions. And so I'm not, I, 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 I guess, so yeah, for me, I find it easier to kind of in planning a, in planning an offer, I find it easier to step across the table and put myself in the business owner's head than to put myself necessarily as a parent or as a consumer of medical services or whatever, where, where the, the cat, it's N of one in that case, yeah. right? And there's a whole bunch of special things going on. Yeah. But is it always, is it necessarily a distinction between B2B or consumer? Or you mentioned freelancer. When I was discussing with the, the team at Stacking the Bricks, Alex Ullman, on, on this side, they were making a distinction between freelancers that consider themselves businesses versus freelancers that may not be thinking in terms of unnecessarily business thinking. And you can make the same relationship with there are businesses that are passion projects. There are businesses that are lifestyle businesses that don't necessarily have the same systemic that where they don't necessarily make business decisions around the same kind of driver that we mentioned, like saving time, saving cost, investing in different types of opportunities. Like, is it more about the way the decision makers are wired or it's more about the way that the organization is structured, whether it sells to businesses or whether it sells to consumers? So I think that's a really good question. So I guess I'd have two observations. The first is we see a lot more artists starting companies these days for, for whatever reason. I think that the, the software has become commoditized. People can follow kind of an artistic path 
in a way that 10 or 20 years ago, they probably would have to learn a lot more about computer science to be able to do something. Now they don't, right? And there, I think you get a lot more question about identity. And so selling to freelancer artists, I think, looks a little different. And we don't, that's not something we typically do. In larger companies, you do get into politics. And so there, the decision is not always, it's, it's not always crafted in terms of what's best for the organization, but what's best for me as the decision maker. Ordinarily, in, in larger firms that are functional, that gets minimized because people are trying to, people are more concerned with survival. I think, I think you see that political stuff spring up more when you've had a run of a lot of good years. And so people forget that things can go wrong, that revenue can go down, and that they have to collaborate to survive. And so that's, that's, a, that's a complication in some of the enterprise sales. But to me, but, but in general, for me, the enterprise decision-making, the business decision-making is predictable. And the, I, I think the stacking of bricks, guys, it's, it's probably a useful distinction. They're probably seeing a, a mix of more business-oriented entrepreneurs and more identity-oriented entrepreneurs. For sure, for sure. I, I would worry if I was selling to small restaurants, for example, because the thinking of the, the owners may be completely based on more artistic decisions than what we typically traditionally more associate with B2B decision-making. But you made an interesting point there, an interesting distinction. You said when a company is well-functioning or when it, it's rational, like I completely agree that in normal terms or in good terms, a company would have objectives, a board that's driving down some level of prioritization. They would be acting towards different, different goals, different initiatives that they're trying to do to achieve certain goals that are in the best interest of the shareholders for the company. But what percentage of the companies that you work with in the past or that you've interacted with or that you did customer development with would you say fit perfectly that kind of rational organization that kind of kind of fits the predictable pattern that we're talking about in terms of, of addressing the right needs or, or pursuing the right opportunity that will help them achieve the goals that they are, are clearly stating or are putting forward for the organization? So I tend to work with smaller firms. So what I'm saying is not maybe the way a large firm would approach the problem. But we ordinarily look for, we look for the decision to get made as low as possible in the organization. And we, we look essentially for a department manager, a first or second level manager who's got a problem. And that person is normally able to combine the budget and the, the ability to spend money and make the decision and then relies on the team or the group or the department to, to do the evaluation analysis to say, yes, we can use this. Yes, this is going to move us forward. So we tend to come in low in the organization. As a rule of thumb, the, what's called the IT folks are, I don't want to say never our friend, but very, very rarely. Okay. So you're, you're in a way you're kind of trying to avoid that complexity of multi-stakeholder 
a decision-making unit or a group decision where there's more people that can weigh the different perspectives or maybe bring different alternatives to the table. So you're trying to minimize the amount of decision steps or the amount of actors within the decision-making process in the organization. So in the, at a department level, everyone has a stake in the success of the department, right? But that level, there may be many voices. There may be different points of view. There may be a full and frank exchange of views, but there is an interdependence at that level that if you're trying to do a multi-divisional sale, you get into competitive friction that we, we normally try and do as a step two or a step three. And you can call this land and expand. There's, there's names for it, but essentially we try and start as low as possible. And I think the other thing that's, that's happened is that, I mean, a lot has happened to change the way that software is packaged and delivered, whether it's SaaS, whether it's containers. And so, so part of that has, if you look at the trend over the last 30 years, used to see three-year contracts, used to see one big contract sold top-down. And I think companies have become much more sophisticated consumers of technology. I mean, you must have seen this as well, right? I mean, what changes yeah. have you seen? Well, just, right? just, just based on that, I think other, other companies have caught on to what you mentioned, like trying to, to cut out the complexity in this. Because if you look at like product-led growth, for example, or the way a lot of software is being brought to market, oftentimes they're going straight for the, the department heads or the people that are within the departments and then kind of looking for that energy within the organization to kind of propagate their business model. Like if you look at a company like Atlassian, who has a very smart strategy in terms of land and plan, where they try to find tools that give them a way inside organization and gradually uh, extend their branches until they're able to, to capture all the buyers within the organization. I think that's very much where the, the decision-making process has been evolving. It, it's much less about top-down, although it still is in some instances, than it is more about finding the right, the right stakeholders in the organization. And a lot of the more modern strategies I've, I've, I've pushed in that direction of trying to get direct to the, 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 the person who will be buying. So the decision-making unit is still important, but it's a little bit different where now, because there's that proliferation of the amount of technology inside the organization and teams wanting to have their own products that they want to use, so they will tend to be, there will be more different instances of the products. There's also led to a proliferation of the, uh, the tools to kind of track what the company is buying, the rise of uh, procurement as a way to make sure that the company is not spending too much on different licenses and products. So it's kind of the, the decision-making process has changed, but also the way uh, B2B companies as uh, are approaching organization has changed as well, which there's kind of a middle ground and a battle between control and, and value provided for different stakeholders inside organization. That has been very interesting to watch over the, I'd say like the last six, seven years. Some of the factors we discussed, the politics and the rivalries and all that, I think that's invariant. I mean, that's just, that's just anytime yeah. you make an organization out of the crooked timber of humanity, that's what you, right? So, so that, that's, I think that's actually an invariant and I don't think that's getting any better or any worse, right? Uh, I also think that the 
there are kind of local conditions and local problems that the department managers may be responding to, but they have to fit into some strategic context that is set top down. But I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know that we see a lot of technology direction. I mean, I think there's, you know, digital business, there's all of these, you know, buzzword worthy initiatives, but I'm not yeah. sure when you actually get to the nuts and bolts, I think it's, it's, it's the people that are pretty close to the ground and pretty close to the problem trying to craft, um, the next best step. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, if, if anything, the buzzwords are often obfuscating to some extent what needs to get done. Like, cause if your buyer is not, is not looking on the channels that you're looking at in terms of bringing up the the, the the innovation or if they're not allowed to do their purchasing process this way. So you might be trying to replicate strategies that just won't work with your, 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 your ideal customer profile that you're targeting. I think, I think that's very interesting the way it has kind of shifted the discussion around B2B. It's certainly attracted more people because there is in B2B both from the reasons that we talked about in terms of it being more predictable or it being more likely to generate a financial outcome in some extent where you can you can kind of kind of make sure that there will be customers once you're starting to find some level of product market fit so there's a there's a way to get your niche get to get a set of customers so definitely i think a lot of people from b2c initially have transitioned towards b2b and it's been interesting to see some of the 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 strategies that they brought in terms of both marketing but also like product design and all that has improved things moving forward. So if I flip this back to you, so there's a lot of things that changed. You've been in B2B for several years. How do you see it evolving in the next, next, next year? What, what remains true and what is going to change? You mentioned that politics will probably remain at play. There's other aspects that we talked about, but how do you see B2B entrepreneurship evolving in the, let's say five to next 10 next years? You know, that's a really hard question. And I <laughs> wish I had a, I, I wish I had a well worked out. I think we're coming to the end of several trends and we can't necessarily see what's emerging. At least I can't. They're probably when we look back five years from now, people say that was odd. Didn't mm -hmm. you see that, you know, containers were going to continue and do this, or didn't you see that? But, but for me, it's, it's hard to discern. I think that the economic conditions are going to get more challenging. And that's going to change a lot of decision-making and a lot of behavior. You wouldn't have thought that, I mean, at least again, in Silicon Valley and technology companies, it seems almost obligatory now to have like a 10 or 15 or 20% layoff, which if you would have said that four years ago, would have been hard to foresee, right? Yeah. So it's, I guess I'm sorry. I don't, I, I wish I had a, a better set of insights. Crystal ball. Well. <laughs> it's it just, it's hard for me to discern. I think that to me, it's, it's like looking at a weather map and they go, well, we've got this coming from this direction, this coming from this direction. And we're just not sure, you know, yeah. it's, it's hard for me to net out the sum of forces. I, I guess what I would say is that it's probably going to be driven more by a continued trend to push decision-making an autonomy lower in the organization. I, I do think that the cutbacks and the economy is going to push centralization, but the, but 
the source of kind of nimbleness and local responsiveness is it's it's hard to beat that. Yeah. And it's hard to do that from once you get more than maybe 150 people in a in a group or decision making process. Yeah, really, you know, 500 or a thousand or if you're in headquarters, I think it's harder to see. Yeah, but I. I... I would kind of make this as a... What do you see? I mean, I guess, you, you, I mean, you're probably a bigger, bigger study than I am. Well, I would kind of see this as a, as an ongoing battle that will keep going to some extent where you have a drive to have more, 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 I guess, decision-making by the decision-makers in the organization where people will want to have their own tools, have their own solutions that are way more specific to their specific use case. I think that's going to keep going, but then you're going to keep having that battle to try to not necessarily do what the what centralized IT used to do, but kind of address some of that as well. Like I was discussing with an entrepreneur in the financial space recently, and he was discussing how basically this past year, and this might be economic climate and everything that came with it, apparently the purchase authority has decreased significantly for a lot of people in the organization. So there is an organization where CFOs can't approve anything above three five thousand $5,000 now on their own. So just that, that desire, that drive for the company to kind of control costs, will probably be in a, in a consistent battle with users wanting to have the latest tools or have their, their own little unique thing. Because the reality of all these different roles, if you're looking at a large company, like, like they all have their own unique domain knowledge that I think as it moves forward, as tools become more niche or there might be more indie creators or my more different approach, there might be more tools to address more of these needs, which is the exciting part, like there might be more smaller tools, smaller micro, micro SaaS or micro companies to fill some of these gaps, but they will still kind of fit in within that holistic perception. So I think they'll still be competing for the same kind of money because the money will not magically, the budget for spending on technology will not be multiplying. If anything else, I think it will probably be reducing because you're seeing as well trends that software is not always the end product for a lot of companies. Now, a lot of companies and technology seem to be thinking more in, in terms of ecosystem, in terms of more like, how do I capture my, my customers and then create things for them, be it a combination of service, a combination of installations, hardware, technology, different SaaS products. I think that's going to keep going as well, where it's going to be more about I acquire a customer than I offer a plethora of different, different value-adding service to maintain those relationships with customers longer term. But this is just based on speculation and the trends that I've been seeing over the past few years. So I'm hoping that someone will stumble on this podcast a few years from now and put that in my face, telling me that I was completely wrong about the future. No, so I, I agree with the increasing specialization, and I think that's going to go on. I think where I would maybe take exception is I still think that the team manager, department manager, second level kind of group manager is is where the where a lot of the decision making is going to take place. Yeah. And I think that I'm not sure that the individual knowledge worker is going to have, because you have to work in groups and teams and workflows and value streams, there has to be a working consensus on what you're going to get from folks that are, you know, in front of you in the chain or whatever, and what you need to deliver to the people that are, that are after you in the chain, right? So I think that 
it's normally somebody that's that's one or two, maybe three levels up that's that's responsible for getting that workflow to work. And I think that's where the that's I don't think I, I don't think the quote consumerization of IT, I don't think individual people are gonna get with with rare exception. I do think if you've got a very highly specialized job in the company, if you're a one of, so if you're like, if you have a very specialized role, then I think they'll let you pick what tools you need for your specialized role, certain HR applications, maybe certain treasury applications. If you're one of two mechanical engineers working in a company, then they're going to let you, probably if the two of you can agree, they're going to let you make that choice, right? The other people aren't going to lean in. So I think that's, I guess that's where I came up. But I agree with the, I agree with the increasing specialization of solutions. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably a good point to cut off from the episode. Where can people uh, ask us questions? Can people give us feedback on this? This is our first podcast of this series. So if there's any feedback or any comments, where do they send them, Sean? Well, I think they should contact you at wherever the... <laughs> on Twitter. Well, so, they can contact both of us on Twitter. So I'm at E. Garbugli and you're S.K. Murphy on Twitter. Yeah, you can hit me on Twitter. You can you can come to the skmurphy.com website and you should give them whichever of your many vast web properties <laughs> you'd like them. That works for me. So we'll be in tune for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Time to Market. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe on your favorite app and join us next week for more B2B banters.